that you can talk about an exit all you want, but sometimes employees see that as a distant and uncertain future. Whereas as a founder, you're disillusioned because you're like, this is going to happen. We have to, we almost have to be naive that we're going to exit within five years, seven years, and we're going to manifest it. They don't think like you as a founder, they're thinking, dude, if I'm going to be here for that long, I got to get rewarded. So profit sharing is the intermediate term reward. All right. What's up, y'all? Welcome. This is Bootstrapping SaaS to Millions. I'm Mike. Kevin is back in the house this week. And uh, yeah, this is the podcast where we share stories and lessons learned of taking our business from zero to an eight-figure valuation. Uh, all right, Kev, here's what we're talking about this week. I want to talk about money. Obviously, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> exactly. This is like such a um, taboo topic in a lot of circles, especially like the previous generation. Like nobody talked about salary. Nobody talked about um, just how people feel about their salaries. And so I want to dive into money just from a few aspects. I want to talk about how like salaries are perceived by others, like CEO salaries, kind of stemming from a conversation um, a friend recently had. I want to talk about how our employees kind of perceive their own salaries, some of the stuff that we have been, um, some of the hard conversations that we've been having with several of them, um, the negotiating. It's just a really difficult thing. And I, I think more light needs to be shed on how people think about it. And then how we perceive money ourselves, like how much we pay ourselves, how much we um, pull out of the company versus keep in, kind of the mentality and approach that we've used to decide some of that. Because uh, it's easy to talk about when we're making zero dollars for, for a few years and uh, being the lowest paid people on the team. And now it's a very different story and there's a lot to factor in. So how's that sound like for, for a topic for you? Oh, so good. Because I've heard other podcasts that skim on this topic and, they, and, and one in particular that is always so upset that it's still so taboo. It's still so in the closet people don't talk about it. So it's like a holdover from our parents' generation. It's still very prevalent. And I think in most workplaces. So yeah. I'll tell a story in a minute about, you know, my experience at Schwab um, and even home advisor to where it's just this black box, just like it's this, it's this weird elephant in the room that's always there and everyone alludes to it or they hint, but they never like tell you how they feel about money. And it's crazy. So like at Schwab, you never talked about your salary with other people working there. Never. So, uh, I was there, I, I had an entry level job making, I think 40 K maybe started at 40 and, uh, and you're kind of on this floor of financial advisors. So it's a floor of about hundred financial advisors, um, and that managed, you know, billions of dollars collectively. So this was Schwab private client group. So it's like the, the high net worth people, a million up to like a hundred million. And, uh, you know, you get your starting salary and then you have your quarterly reviews where you get rated and on all this, on these things you're doing well, and you get like a one through 10 rating. And then they kind of tell you, and you get your 3% inflation raised to this. And that was it. It was just like a, a hurried rushed thing at the end of the talk. It was never, it never started with, Hey, I'm at 40. I want to get to 50. How do I get to 60? What could I do? It was just this very formulaic thing, which in hindsight, made me check out right away. Cause I'm like, eh, I could do all this work over there and get my 3%, maybe get 5% <laughs> or I could just coast along, you know, it's just like a bad yeah. set of alignment, but yeah. 
I think I even brought it up occasionally to like the senior advisors that I started to get more comfortable with. I'm just like, Oh, like, what are you, what are you making? What's your bonus? Like, and they'd be like, Oh, you know, it's pretty good. Pretty solid. Uh, you know, I'm making, I'm doing pretty well, you know, I could, <laughs> you know, it's like, it was so weird. I remember it being so awkward and I didn't even know how to ask it directly at the time. Cause I was like 25, but it, I just remember then feeling really weird that I couldn't ask directly, like, what do you get compensated for all this work you're doing? Or like, what does the company make as a whole, you know, or it's a public company. So you knew, but, but yeah, like it's, so that's into me that always stuck with me of like, that just felt like a wall was always up between you and your manager, between you and your coworkers. Um, Did you ever have an experience like that? Like with even contracting, I got you contracting. You know, Cause I only had a few brief experiences in the corporate world and it did feel like, like I, I never perceived it well. Cause it felt like you had to claw your way up like inch by inch and you would never, which could, was probably a misperception. Cause there's obviously people that succeed and do very well and can get rich working in the corporate environment. It just felt like a slow track to me. So that's why I kind of went the route of entrepreneurship and what was great about freelancing web dev was like with every project, I just raised my rate a little bit more and see if anybody said no. And that, that makes it very easy because every new customer, every new project, you just talk about money every time you, you submit a bid, say, Hey, here's my current rate. Here's how many hours. So this is how many thousands of dollars. And for the most part, it was, it was fine. Right. And, um, and that felt really good to me. I, you know, it's funny though, because in the past I would have probably called myself a socialist. Maybe I still do. I don't know. haven't really reevaluated lately, mm-hmm. but like just that, um, that notion of like, how much you make versus how much the company makes. I always perceived it as, man, I'm the guy doing all the real work. I'm coding. And then somebody's paying me what amounts to a pittance compared to what they're being paid. Cause they just like sourced the contract from some five, fortune 500, fortune 100 company. <laughs> and I would resent it kind of now that we are in the position of co-CEOs of this multi-million dollar company. My perspective has shifted on money quite a bit my perspective has shifted a bit on the people that are, you know, or even like what the actual work is. And, um, and so that's something I want to dive into first. Right. And some of this stems from a conversation my wife had with a friend where she, she works for some real estate developer and she was just like, Oh, I get paid like 45 K and I'm doing all the real work of managing all the contractors while he's getting paid like 600 K and it's just not fair and blah, blah, blah. And, um, I think that's common, right? Most people feel like, hey, I do all this hard work and that's common. So like, what would you say to somebody? Because now we're CEOs, mm-hmm. we do well. And what would you say to somebody that's like, justify how much you get paid? And I was in the same boat of like feeling disgruntled, making my 40, 45 and I only knew my perspective. I only knew like what I thought was hard work at the time. And so, uh, you know, I don't fault anyone for feeling this way because if you've never started and grown a company, how would you ever know what went into it? And so I think like storytelling, we always talk about storytelling being huge. So, so the way I would tell people now of like, Hey, imagine this, imagine you quit your job and you had 20 grand, 10 grand, five grand in savings. And you had to figure out how to build a product, how to market it, how to sell it. No one knew who, no one knows who you are, by the way. Uh, and you have a timeline, you have about a year before 
this has to work. And so you're eating burritos, you're eating ramen, uh, you're doing the startup grind and kind of talking through how mentally taxing that is, how that hurts your relationships, how that hurts your hairline, how that hurts uh, your waist size, how that impacts everything about you. Um, and not to mention you're, you're not earning anything while you're losing money and you're drawing down your bank account, trying to get this, bring this thing into existence. So I try to really articulate, I just did this just the other day with one of our people of like articulating just how huge that push is to get that boulder going down the hill. Like it's just like months and months. Some people it's years of sacrificing everything they have in their life, basically their well-being, their health to just get a little momentum. And then once that momentum goes, the boulders rolling down the hill and then everyone just kind of comes in from the side and just starts kind of like helping push this boulder down the hill. And it's very, that's why early startup employees make more because they're part of pushing that boulder. It's like, I think people need to evaluate when they came into a company and how replaceable their skills are. Let's, let's dive into that one. Cause I think you, one, you're absolutely right. Like nobody really sees the sacrifice and the opportunity costs that founders put in because they, you know, by the time founders can hire, they've done probably the hardest part mm -hmm. and they've done it while making probably no to very little money. And so once people come on board and they're saying, oh, wow, now the founders are like getting paid a very large paycheck or um, they're not distributing enough of the profits or whatever. It's like, well, some of it is us paying ourselves back for all of that risk. We're cashing out some of those, some of those chips that we were just putting in for years before anybody else got on board. So I think that's huge. That's something that every employee should understand. If you're the founder of a company and you want your employees to listen to this, like feel free. Cause I think that's, that's huge. Um, and then I think you hit on another big topic, which is like replacement cost. I used to perceive like the hours I put in and the effort I put in as something that meant something. I don't, it, it not, doesn't necessarily it, it, what matters most is business impact and then supply and demand of the marketplace. So let's talk about those. Right. So like, Somebody might say, hey, I put in like 60 hours a week. Shouldn't I get a raise? Anybody can like coast at a desk for 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day and, and do very little. Well, some people can come in and have a very efficient seven hours and have much more business impact, business profitability increasing, um, whatever it is to justify getting paid more, right? Mm -hmm. And, and that's huge. That's such a hard thing for many people, especially if they come from an hourly background or a, uh, you know, I just sweat a lot. I put in the work. That kind of background might lead you to believe that that matters. And the biggest thing for employees to, to like change the mindset about is that, and, and even CEOs, let's be honest, like you and I have put in, yeah, 80, 100 hour weeks. And I'd like to think all those hours mattered. Some did, some didn't. It's hard to say which, but um, hours work does not equal business value. What do you want to say about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think everyone's been guilty at one point or another of like spending, surfing the internet, spending time on YouTube, Facebook throughout the day. So yeah, you're right. It's like number of hours is almost irrelevant. Um, and I think a lot of people, if 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 you're not one of those people that are thinking about the bottom line and the best use of your time, and you need to kind of be directed and told what the best use of your time is, 
that's probably a sign that you are almost deserving of kind of what you're being paid. Because if you don't even know if you're spending your time wisely, like you need guidance and you need someone to manage you. And then that is obviously going to be lower on the pay scale (laughs) because uh, it takes a different level of thought and energy to like strategize, to know what the right things to do are to make decisions with limited information. Like that's what I never understood managers and C-suites did and how draining it is. That's the new, that's the like revelation I had was like how draining me and you having a two hour talk on the best way to up our conversion rate and tweaks to the website. Like those are high leverage changes. And, and the deeply human conversations of being a manager and talking to people when they believe their salary should be higher, that they're not being recognized enough. Those are so emotionally draining. Um, Cause you're right. I used to kind of say, ah, what, what's the use of managers? These people that are just like doing nothing while well, I'm writing all the code. Now I understand like writing code in retrospect felt easy. Like I can write code 60 hours, 80 hours a week and feel like, Hey, yeah, that was taxing in like an intellectual sense. But after that, I could still leave and go and have like a great conversation with friends or my wife. Now, some days I feel so emotionally drained, even from just three or four hours of like really deep, high level conversation. Um, It's a very different muscle. And those soft skills are a lot harder to develop and come by, which kind of bridges into that other thing we talked about, like replacement costs, supply and demand of the marketplace. Um, So, and you know, I think the best way to illustrate this, like when you think about um, pro athletes, right? A lot of people think pro athletes paid way too much. People will look at like one guy and say, hey, he makes like 40 million a year. How is that even possibly justified? It's kind of the same thing, the replacement cost. You don't see all the effort, all the hours, all the time that got put into this guy getting to the point where he's at where for somebody else of his comparable talent and mental discipline and hardworking mentality to, to be swapped out to make that franchise the same amount, that's huge, right? And I, and I hate sports, by the way. I think people are definitely overpaid in that, but it's a function of, it's a business that makes a lot of money. And so they're exactly paid what they should be because they're generating that kind of profit for that business. Oh, I love this. I love this, where this is going. So some would say they're underpaid based on the enterprise value they're creating for um, the you know NBA, NFL. So like, I love thinking about this and like, okay, LeBron James, say he's a recognizable name, hard to replace, hard to replace someone that's, you know, 6'8", 260, does as athletic, does all the things he does, right? So of course his money is going to be portion of that. But if he's generating a couple billion dollars globally for Nike, for the NBA, percentage-wise, I would love to see the breakdown of other people. And so I think there's no calls for him to distribute his wealth to everyone. If he just gave $1,000 to everyone in the US, everyone would have their rent paid for a month. Why is that? Because he plays a sport and we glamorize sport in this country because people are coming for Jeff Bezos head. Um, But I think you can't see his product on the court. That's the, to me, that's almost the difference is like Amazon is like, well, you can't, I mean, you use Amazon, right? So to me, it's weird because it's like his backstory is not always on display. Whereas LeBron, like the NBA does a good job of telling the narratives of these players so that everyone's like, man, he, he worked really hard. Whereas like, so did Elon Musk. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's funny there's a lot of elon musk hate circulating like reddit right now right because people are like oh he's not even engineered what's his uh 
time being spent at SpaceX going to do to help anything? Or what's Jeff Bezos time at Blue Origin going to do to help anything? He doesn't even know how to build rocket ships. As it turns out, that's like the most easily replaceable part of the business probably is like engineers, whereas somebody that can coordinate billions of dollars of resources, hundreds or even thousands of people, and make sure that everybody in that organization feels good and singularly focused on a mission and a vision and waste as minimal amount of time as possible to get there. Turns out that's the hardest job. And that's why these folks get paid a ton combined with the ownership of the underlying asset, which is like you were saying earlier, founders, people that put in all that sweat equity. Um, that's something that also deserves some reward because of all the risk that they took early on. So these two factors, really play into money and when some somebody on your team is saying hey why are you making this much while i'm making this much um and we can talk about like you know some of the differences in in terms of different departments or different backgrounds yeah we're i mean we're even learning how to articulate the mental gymnastics thinking in the abstract is right and so when you think of like a i don't know a city planner that has to like work with the architects and figure out which way the roads go and how high buildings can be and how many people it can accommodate versus the person just laying bricks building the building which one do you think is going to be more uh in less supply right like the visionary or the people that are uh learning a task just like go do the skill go do the task so do you think yeah, tell me what you think about this statement that this is rooted in people just overvaluing their own abilities and skill sets or just thinking that what they're doing is unique when in reality it's like, well, we could find 50 other people that could probably do that around the similar competency. Oh, and I used to hate this where everybody gets boiled down to just like a number and this replaceable person. And yet it's the sad reality that we have to exist in. And so, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, one of our... Um, you know, client success slash salespeople was kind of like, oh, why does that engineer have a Tesla when, you know, like mm -hmm. what, I'm working more hours than him. And it's like, well, gosh, let's break down a little bit about the path leading to this. Like my freshman year of computer science, mm -hmm. two thirds of the people dropped out, started with a class of 30, 10 people finished freshman year. You extrapolate that across the entire program of four years. Computer science is really hard. Most people's minds can't make that shift to thinking about it that way. So one, it's just a really hard skill set to acquire, which means there's a lot less people, which means, hey, to keep those kind of people, to get the, to have them want to work for you, you have to pay more. Whereas somebody that can come into sales, it's like, okay, anybody can really get into something, learn it a little for a month and then start selling it. And yeah, some people do better. Sale, the best salespeople make the most money usually in any given company. Right. But it's such a different path leading up to it. Just like LeBron James practicing hundreds of hours every, you know, every month, week, whatever to get, to get to that point of being one of the best in the world. Any given engineer has probably put in a lot more time to learn the skills necessary to do what they do. And so that's like this marketplace dynamic that, yeah, no matter how hard you work, no matter how good you are at your one task, and you may be amazing at it, just understand that there might be greater supply of people with that skill set out there. Yeah. And hopefully this is helping for founders listening, even like start these talks and be able to kind of, cause I think before we started basically making it up and talking about it, I felt like I had no framework to kind of tee up the discussion to a salesperson, to a client success person. Um, 
because everyone can create irreplaceability in different ways. Cause you mentioned sales. It's like, okay, if you have the endurance to make 50 calls a day for uh, five days a week for, you know, 50 weeks a year, that's hard to, that might be hard to replace now. Okay. So your value is going to go up because you're actually making more commissions and you're doing more. So, um, it's a hard talk to have to tell people that like, you don't yet have the skills that are irreplaceable. Yeah. Or hard. And then there's, yeah. And then there's also the, um, not just the skill somebody's hired to do, but their impact on the team. How do they affect the team's morale? Do they bring a ton of positive energy every single day? Do they bring a lot of, um, just pick upness to everybody around them? And that's like one of those ineffables that makes people get raises or not. And that's a really hard thing to, to reason with. Like lately we've been having that conversation of like, Oh, do we need like pay scales and publish things on, Hey, if you do this, you earn this much in this role. And I think that's really hard because some people just bring something that like exudes to the rest of the team. And you can't really quantify that. Anybody trying to have that as a discussion, it always comes back to some subjective measure of like, Oh, well, I'm fun. I I bring, I'm energetic. And it's like, well, how do you measure that other than subjectively? That gets murky, right? I know we've, we've had a few discussions around, like, you know, I just have a gut feel that this person is uh, impacting the company positively. That's, that'll never be solved. And we've kind of resorted to maybe allocating a portion of our consideration towards that, but not, not all of it or something. Right. I yeah. mean, that's- and we've made some mistakes along the way. I think that some people come in, they have like this amazing first quarter and they were like, here's a bunch of money. Like you, you get this raise. Cause you're just so, and it was the honeymoon period. Yep. And then later we're like, Oh, okay. You've probably regressed to your mean. You, you put your best foot forward first. And then we've been, uh, so we've been trying to say, Hey, we need to see a little bit more consistency of that performance over time, whether it's nine months, 12 months, before we quickly react. Cause I think anybody can have a, a short honeymoon phase, but to show who they really are over time, what their habits are, it takes a little more time than three to six months. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. Um, I don't know. You want to shift to, to kind of how we think about money for ourselves. And, uh, by, yeah. I guess by extension, it's also going to, um, yeah, lead into how we talk about money with our team too. Cause I think right. everyone I'll tee it up this way. Everyone has a relationship with money one way or another. And, and this, trust me, this doesn't come from a guru perspective. This literally comes from a perspective of someone that's like evaluating his own relationship with money and trying to read a book or two. Um, and think about how I think about money because most of us haven't done that before. Get deep real quick. How do you, how, where are you at? How do you think about money? What's your current perspective? Well, I think where I came from might be a similar place from you. So we were raised, uh, you know, f- pretty frugal, like I'd say, middle-class family, maybe on the low end of that in hindsight of knowing we live paycheck to paycheck, um, had, had nice things, had decent things, never felt like we had it all, um, moved around cause we were military a little bit. So, but every, but it was like water in the orange juice, you know, throw a little extra water in the ketchup to make a little more to finish the bottle, um, wearing old stuff sometimes hand-me-downs. So, my relationship with money coming out of that was it's scarce, save as much as you can live really, really lean, never go into debt, um, pay off credit cards, never have a car payment. Um, you know, try to eat for a couple hundred bucks a month. (laughs) So that was, and I think there was a certain almost, um, glamorization in my, for me, at least I glamorized 
wealth and money, but I always thought, okay, like I'm not going to go to the NBA anymore. That's that dream's dead. I'm going to start a business someday and I'm going to become a multimillionaire. That was like how I thought about money, but it was like the way I treated it was very scarce, very like, okay, wear the same thing for years and years and years. Cause I don't want to spend on frivolous things. Um, same. Yeah. Yeah. I, you, I yeah before our, I go into now, yeah. You tell me if, if you have anything to add to that. Yeah. I think it's super similar, but then I was also influenced by mom who I think um, had a, a different approach than dad where she would be like, Hey, it's payday. Let's go buy you guys like a new Nintendo game. Let's go shopping. It was more of a, let's live for now. Cause the future is not guaranteed. Like her parents died when she was very young. And so that imprinted on her this like idea that, Hey, everything's impermanent and you got to like live for today. And so I have this weird combo of the two, right? We're like, <laughs> I still probably in my closet have some clothes from college. Leah's been making me throw them away gradually every time she sees me wear one, but I still have some of that. And I, I have a hard time. Like if my kids don't finish their plate, I'm not going to throw it away. I just like eat it. And that's going to be part of my waistline. Eventually it's going to catch up here if I stop playing volleyball. And, um, and so there's that, that part, but then I spent a lot of my twenties like, Hey, I have five grand in the bank. I'm going to go bum around Europe for a month. And I would get by super frugally, but really soak up these experiences of just like staying in hostels and seeing the sights of the old world and meeting people from all over the world. And I would like live that up. And, um, and so I didn't save as much as maybe some would have, because I was making at times decent money web doing web dev. And then at times I was working like random jobs, like adventure tourism company that made like $3 an hour or, um, you know, working at elementary school, just helping out underprivileged kids and making like 10 bucks an hour in, in California. And so I had this up and down, like when I got some money, I saved it. My, my investment portfolio was pretty low risk, just like index funds of total market or fortune 500. And so, um, so I have this weird mix and I kind of oscillate between the two. I think since having kids, I've definitely leaned more back into dad's side of super frugal like don't take too many big risks make sure that we're saving 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 and um you know it's it's a little bit different than i think when i was young and unencumbered we were very similar i guess now that you say all that it, i we can call it like the barbell uh approach to money where it's just like super frugal don't spend but then there's like a binge side to each of us where it's just like yeah i would save for a year and eat just chicken and tacos and like oatmeal but then I'd go to Vegas and spend like a couple grand, you know? And so, or I, you know, like went to Lulu, Lululemon and spent like $2,000 last week. But then I literally have the same yeah. boxers on from like seven years ago. <laughs> so it's very weird. I think the way we're, we, we have both mom and dad in us. And so I think all that goes to say, like knowing where your money habits and mindset comes from is like a good starting point. I think that's what we dig right. into a lot. And analyzing them and saying, does this still serve me? Because I think for the first few years of Spectora, we were bootstrapped extraordinary. Like we didn't buy anything. Oh, yeah. If there was a free plan, we used it. If it got if it got over whatever tiers where we're getting towards a charge, we'd either switch or we'd figure out ways to split up the account and like do half the day on like one error reporting system, the other half on the other, just to make sure like we didn't have to spend a dime. And I think ruthlessly bootstrapped and that's ruthless. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're getting to a point where I don't think that serves us where we're spending too much time on workarounds. Like we started paying for Slack because we're like, 
doing all these things so that we never have to scroll back so far where the messages have disappeared. It's like, well, okay, a couple hundred bucks a month. Yeah, we're making like six million a year in revenue. We could probably afford Slack. And so some <laughs> of that mentality no longer serves us. And, um, and that's tough because it's going against some of our hard wiring. It's making us have to really reevaluate certain things. What do you think about that? It's amazing to analyze because when you start, when you step back, when you actually have time to step back, once you're kind of at a cruising altitude or you uh, have made it, you know, product market fit, whatever, and you have time to step back and say, man, how much time did we spend talking about the pros and cons of like free versus 12 bucks a month plan or like scheduling wise, like jumping to Calendly was a big deal when it was just like, okay, there's four of us now sending all these emails. What is that time? And in like you, the messy middle, you start to waste a lot of time on bullshit logistics. And so it definitely is a shift and it's hard. It's still hard because we were very like just profit driven founders, which in the VC world obviously isn't, isn't really a thing. Um, you know, right. most people don't think about the bottom line as much because it's just growth, growth, growth. So now shifting to growth, it does take throwing money at certain problems and scaling and like all these themes very different than let's, max out our profitability so we can hire someone. Right. And I will say we've always been profitable since like, you know, towards the end of year one, where we were making enough money, we started paying ourselves. Um, but we were always profitable. There's always like some sort of owner distribution that we've done. And we've ranged from a profit margin of probably as low as like 30% to as much as 70%. I think we usually come in right around 50 to 60%. Mm -hmm. And that to me has always felt like pretty good because we're not risking everything on future growth. We're kind of cashing out some chips and paying ourselves back for some of those non-earning years, mm -hmm. some of the risk that we took. And, um, and, and it's so, yeah, is there a right amount? Like you read that some of these big companies are like 80, 90% profit margins. And then I'm sure there's companies that are investing a ton into growth and there's no profits and we don't know how much the owners are paying themselves or not there. It's a, it's a really hard thing and super up to every entrepreneur and founder's like individual stage of life, where they are in that journey, where the business is, what the future prospects are. And so it's hard to give any kind of like prescriptive advice here. But um, what are some ways you want to talk about of like how to think about it? Yeah, I was going to say, you, you, you know, I was going to ask you to talk about how you feel about the time, the timing of when we started paying ourselves and how much and, uh, and if we could go back, would, would you do it again? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I, so you know, being like more from the entrepreneurial background, I've been taking uh, risks and taking swings, you know, for a good 15, 20 years now. And, um, and there was a sense that when we were starting this company, that it wasn't going to be something as idealistic as some of my past endeavors. It was going to be something that was more pragmatic, that had a really good chance of being profitable really quickly. And that's kind of what led to choosing our niche and everything else. And then I just threw myself at it, like more hours than I've ever had to throw at anything ever. And like you said earlier, massive toll on every other aspect of my life. So like a part of what we pay ourselves now and how we, when we chose to pay ourselves was with all of that context in mind of, I don't think I have another one of these in me. I don't think I have another couple of years of doing 80 hour weeks. It just was too much of a toll on everything in my life. 
and it would be, um, I don't know, it'd be impossible, I think, with kids now. And so it was like this unique stage of life where I had to do those things. And I think some of that influences what, when we have these conversations of like, hey, this is how much I think we should draw. This is the spending level I think we should have. A lot of it is kind of with that sacrifice in mind. And so, yeah, us paying ourselves pretty early on. I mean, was it early? We spent a good year and a half, you know, before like building it, marketing it, getting it out there. Some would say that's really late. Um, And even then it was pretty low. I think it was like two grand a month. It's just Mm -hmm. enough for me to like pay bills. Um, That was, I guess, right for us. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, we had a little bit, we had runway, we had personal runway, you know, uh, somewhere I think between 20 or, or 50 grand for a year and a half of like, so we didn't have to pay ourselves every dollar that came in. I think a lot of people listening are probably bootstrappers. And so there's that decision of like opportunity cost of money where can you put every dollar back in the business to make two or three, but then you can't measure the value of paying a dollar to yourself. And so like, I think in hindsight, it eases off that pressure to like push for this goal that's in the future. And that, you know, and then you'll be happy, then you'll pay yourself, then you'll have made it it allowed it to me, it anchored me back to the present and saying, okay, this thing is like paying for some things that like built confidence that like made, I think us make better decisions, I believe, because every dollar didn't have this like urgency, like it has to make $3. It was like, this is kind of feeding, this is feeding us now. Yeah. I think, so yeah. Yeah. Like you said, you can't measure the value of a dollar paid to yourself, but I think you can measure the absence of it. Like you can know how much you stress by watching savings go down. You can know what you feel when you're eating shitty food instead of healthy food, because that's all you can afford. And I think those are some of the things you really have to consider because the mind can't make great decisions from a place of stress. And as a founder, your mind is your greatest tool. And I, I remember, you, you remember that conversation we had where I was like, dude, I'm on the verge of mental breakdown. I'm pushing out a lot of errors. I'm working way too much. Like if we don't scale this back, I think I'm gonna tank this business. And, um, and that was kind of that, that moment where I realized like, oh, I've gone a little too far to that side of just pushing it and grinding it out and hustling. And I think part of it was necessary. And it was also the right time to be like, yeah, but we've made it to 20K MRR. Let's hire a developer. Let's hire some help so that we can now scale intelligently. And that was, um, gosh, it was, it seemed right on time. Like it was, yeah, it was scary. Probably, it was a scary time. Cause you think 20 K MRI, a lot of people listening probably thought about hiring maybe well before that, unless you're kind of one of those unique solo businesses where you can kind of just like build it and run it. But yeah, in hindsight, maybe I, maybe I would have like knowing what we know now been like, let's hire a little sooner and uh, you know, and, and pay ourselves maybe a little sooner. Let's talk about the concept of being worthy of paying ourselves and the money. Cause like imposter syndrome is tied up in this, right. Of, Hey, we haven't even made it yet. We don't have product market fit yet. What are we doing paying? Like, do I deserve two grand a month? Like we're still struggling, you know, we're still like in this fight, you know, and this, instead of being like, no, dude, we, we deserve to pay ourselves well. Right. Like we've worked so hard. I think so, so many societal expectations come in. You probably go to a party people like, Oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm like a startup founder. SaaS founder, whatever. And people think that should come with a certain thing. And if people get tied into, you know, that whole, like, Oh, I'm balling. I got to like show that I have nice things. Are, are you then more inclined to like spend money on frivolous things versus like, you know, I like, I think we were okay 
just flying under the radar for several years of just being like, yep, we're just building this business. We weren't talking about it too much. We weren't like flaunting how much it was growing because I mean, it's, I don't know. I think it's easy to just be like a normal dude working hard on something and, and not really talking about the successes, but, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very different thing as your money comes in and it grows and you say, Hey, can I keep paying myself more? Should I keep paying myself more? Am I worthy to that's yeah. Where you get into like a lot, you know, cause that, at that point you, you've elevated yourself probably to a really high point in society where most people don't get to make some, those kinds of decisions. So what's that conversation internally for you of like, am I worthy to get paid, you know, half a million, a million dollars a year, whatever it is. You know, it's this past year I've done, I've done some money work along with my wife because she is, is big. Um, you know, and females obviously have a different set of like hurdles to get through with how they view money and kind of like the, the societal uh, pressures they have where it's like even more taboo to talk about money as a female, it turns out it's really hard. And so we've together like confronted the relationship with money a lot more to, to say one, like, let's just be upfront and transparent about numbers. Like in just the more repetition, the more it starts to feel like reality as opposed to like everyone, everyone defaults to vague talk when it comes to money, instead of just saying like busting through it with like, well, no, no, how much, like for real, like how much or how much that costs, whatever. So I have shifted to taking almost the emotion out of it and thinking of it as kind of like a value and a tool, um, you know, and I think of like our numbers and the reach that Spectora has. And I think about the number of inspectors, their lives, how they've changed the number of home buyers that get a home inspection report and then make a decision based on that. And like, when you start feeling like an ecosystem is impacted by me and you starting in a home office working for nothing, it's kind of like, okay, my, I'm okay with it. I totally, it's more of toggling things up and down to make sure the business still gets what it needs to float and to kind of like grow. And then on top of that, um, I have no problem giving rewards to employees or not giving them based on value driven for the company. So like I, the proof is in our pudding in my mind where I'm like, I, I don't have that imposter syndrome anymore because I Honestly, I fucking bring it every time I talk. I still I, st- I still do sales calls and I still do support to this day, and I bring it every time I get on there. If I didn't, I would that probably be a different conversation to look in the mirror and say like, why do I feel bad making X amount of you know hundreds of thousands whatever? Oh, that's an interesting hypothetical. So what if at some point, because yeah, you and I still work um, and put in effort every single day. We bring it every single day. We're still very engaged in growing our business still have big ambitions. What happens if you and I decided, Hey, we've done everything we want to here. We're going to kind of hire like CEO and we're going to just be owners at that point. Is it different to feel okay with making as much money as you do? I mean, yeah, you, you know, kind of like we're doing now, we're giving people like percentage of profit. We're kind of rolling out different um, incentivization compensation packages for people that are showing up every single day and like radically transforming everybody underneath them. We're, we're definitely um, rewarding those kinds of people within our company. But like, if you and I decide to take a step back, I think it's no different than if you bought some stock in like Amazon and it went up, like, should you feel guilty about that? Were you, you didn't do the work? Like, <laughs> that's you know? a good analogy. That's a great analogy. 
yeah, I, I think it all lies in the compensation and the incentivization of the people carrying the torch. Um, you know, cause it's one thing to be an absent founder that pays people market rate, no upside incentives. So, but I think when you introduce profit sharing, you introduce true incentive. Yeah. You shouldn't feel bad. Cause I think it, if we were to do that, I believe at least us, we would do it at the time where we feel like it could stand on its own and become and grow and thrive without us. Yeah, exactly. And I believe that we have a company that pays well. We really reward building value within the company. We promote quickly. We've rewarded um, from within primarily. And, um, and yeah, we've been capital efficient. Sometimes we've given chances to people that don't have the exact resume that one might expect and taking chances, you know, maybe people had like a little bit below market rate because it was like a big risk on our side to hire somebody into a role that maybe they weren't ready for, but we just believe they had the skills, but yeah, I feel really good about how we run our company, how we handle money within our company. And, um, but it is a constant conversation with all of our key employees, uh, day in and day out, I think to make sure that, Everybody feels valued. And I think when it comes to all this money talk, the bottom line is how people feel. Do they feel valued? Do they feel engaged in their job? If what they're getting paid is a distraction for them, that's problematic. And that's like worth the talk. And hopefully that talk either level sets, gets expectations on, in the same spot, or forces some action of somebody saying, oh, okay, well, maybe I can't make here for this role what I thought I would. I'm going to either push myself to get into a different role, or I'm going to go to a different company or go back to my, you know, former occupation where I know I can make more, even though it's not something I enjoy as much. Like those are great talks to have and great decisions to be made. Um, but yeah, ultimately I think it always comes back to like everything we talk about on this podcast, how people feel. Love it. I, what's your take on, because I feel like we've had more money talks in the last month or two than we've ever had personally together. And then to our team, talk about the correlation between our relationship with money and addressing it. And then how much easier those talks have become. Do you mean like our, our increasing ability to talk about it and transparency around mm -hmm. it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's um, when it's cloaked in secrecy, when it's like, so, vague, like you said earlier, where it's like, oh yeah, I do pretty well. That anybody that hears that knows something's being hidden, right? And so, no, we haven't made every everything on our payroll totally transparent. I don't know if that's, I'm still warming up to that idea. I don't know if it's a good idea and something we'll do. But to our key employees, where we're saying, hey, here's how I think we can get the most out of our working relationship. We wanna give you a base plus a percentage of our profits. And then they see all the numbers and like, there's often emotions to work through there of people realizing like, oh, wow, this is a profitable business. This is like doing really well and okay. And that this is what I'm worth. This is what I'm bringing to the business. And here's how I can kind of write my own future paychecks by just growing profit. Like to me, that's like it, the conversations became easier around everything. When we talk to these key employees now that have the same kind of um, alignment of goals as us, there's so much less that needs to be explained. It's not this tug of war. It's not like, oh, hey, I just need to hire like five more people. Can you approve that? It's like, oh, if we hired this much more, that impacts my bottom line too. So let's make sure we hire really smart and really effectively. And, um, and so, yeah, I think the conversations have gotten easier the more we've been able to talk about it. 
And I think there's still people in our company that maybe um, haven't developed the same perspective around big picture business that it's not appropriate to talk about with everybody from us all the way down to like brand new hires. Um, because that might be a distraction in the other sense of like, you know, that they're thinking about that and thinking about the injustice or unfairness of like, oh, if this company profits 50% and I'm only getting paid, you know, this, this wage that is probably still very good for the role. If they're thinking about that other stuff, that's a distraction. And so again, boils down to how people feel and where we think we can maximize like the effectiveness of the working relationship with everybody. Yeah. Tying it back to value and like, uh, value has different forms, different currencies, you know, words of affirmation is a currency, you know, like there's so many other ways people can feel value. And some people are like, Oh, it's bullshit. Only money is the bottom line. Uh, I don't think so. I don't agree. I really don't agree after the experiences we've had. Oh, totally. I've worked for people that paid me the most money and they were the worst to work for. And I've worked for like medium level wages, but the project was so engaging and the people that I worked with were so fun that it's like, dude, I would take those all day over the higher wage. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot that goes into how somebody feels. Money is a big part of it. Let's be real. Like that's, that's a very necessary thing and great conversations to have with your employer. And as any CEO and founder should know, you're building a culture, you're building a vibe, you're building a team that matters a ton. So don't get too caught up on the money stuff either. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to ConvertKit, by the way. I think that that their article and documentation of their profit sharing plan gave us a little, uh, you know, blueprint or confidence even to like start exploring that path. Because I think for bootstrapped companies, we've learned from our own experience that you can talk about an exit all you want, but sometimes employees see that as a distant and uncertain future. Whereas as a founder, you're disillusioned because you're like, this is going to happen. We have to, we almost have to be naive that we're going to exit within five years, seven years, and we're going to manifest it. They don't think like you as a founder. They're thinking, dude, if I'm going to be here for that long, I got to get rewarded. So profit sharing is the intermediate term reward. Yes. I, I think it's awesome what we're doing now with profit sharing. We've been giving out equity for the length of our company. And I just never felt like it mattered a ton. Like it matters to some. I think those that are very, you know, they're bought in, they see the vision and they're like, oh, that's awesome. And it's also so far in the future. And I think just, it's not a fault of anybody's if it's not a motivator, it's the fault of the human brain and we're wired for short-term results. And so, yeah, profit sharing, having some element of variable comp tied to the key business interests, like overall company profitability. I think that's, um, that's huge. It, it works in a way that the human mind needs it to work to be an actual motivator. And I think we've seen it turn some people up to the next level. Yeah. I'm a believer in it big time. Uh, and if, and I'd say as a founder, if you have trouble getting to the specifics of what people make a value, I think you got to look within first, I think like to think about, do you feel insecure maybe about what you're paying yourself or do you feel insecure about the company's making or not making and what market rates you're paying people. And so I think acknowledging the elf in the room of saying like, Hey, I know I'm asking you to come in at 35. That's very, it's barely, you know, where you were at before, or that's not a livable wage for where you live here's the path forward. And here's what I believe can happen. You have to make that decision on your own or like, Hey, you want to get to 60? Let's talk about the path there. It just gets easier. The more you do it as opposed, I think it just, it's easy to be vague because it's safe. Oh, and it's so hard. You know, most people don't get asked like, Hey, what's your goals? What's your financial goals in the next five years? 
And most people are, oh, I don't know. But like, push them. Let's really talk about it. Let's think about it. When you're X years old, what do you want to be doing? Where do you want to be in life? What's it going to look like? How much money do you need to support the lifestyle you want? Okay, let's talk about what that might look like within the context of our company. If you can help move the needle on this or that, that's valuable. If you can bring this number up to something, that's valuable. And um, those are the greatest conversations, I think, because then people realize like, oh, okay, like there's a blueprint, there's a path. It might not be easy. I don't think the nature of any startup is easy. We're trying to do things that, you know, it's not like we're just opening another ice cream shop and you just keep stamping it out. This is hard. What we do is hard. And for people that are willing to work hard and not just come in and spend hours, you know, just barely doing enough, but people are able to come in and do something and tie it to that real world impact. That's I think where people can get very wealthy in the context of working for somebody else. Yes. Cause you can't have all money talk because then you're missing the human emotional elements, but then you can't all be full on vision and Hey, we're marching to the top of this mountain. And then people are like, well, but like, I just want to make more than 35 K dude. Like, you know, you got to like tie both together. It's like, that's the secret sauce. I think when we attended a startup week and there were some founders that were just talking about culture, culture, culture. And sometimes the CEO sounded a little tone deaf because it was like, okay, well, is your like incentive, incentive structure and compensation packages, like lining up with this, or are you just expecting it because you say it? And that's, I think what so far it feels like we're doing a pretty good job of is saying, Hey, we'll put our money where our mouth is very literally. If you move the needle on these things, if you show like tremendous business impact, we're happy to part with the profit. Cause that's the stuff that you and I used to be doing. Everything our employees do is stuff you and I used to do. And we used to do it for a lot of hours every single week. And now we're just kind of taking little pieces of ourselves and saying, cool, this is worth it to me for, to pay you for doing what I used to do. If you can show me, you can do it at maybe not the same level, but pretty close to the level that we want. Or in other cases, better if people are like very specialized in a certain path. It's like, yeah, you should be doing this better than I ever did. And um, that's, I think, how we build a good team. Awesome, man. That's all I got. Yeah. Good talk. Good talk. Um, All right. Well, we will see everybody next week. Thanks for listening. Later. Later.